0: All right, let's check in with what is going on overseas now. We know in particular when it comes to protests over the death of Floyd George in Minneapolis, those have taken root everywhere. There are about a thousand people in downtown Vancouver yesterday protesting violence against people of color and black people in particular, and even overseas in countries like Denmark as well. We thought we would check in with what's going on over there, which is why, as always, we turn to former CKNW reporter Shane Woodford. Hi, Shane.
1: Good
2: morning to How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. It's so interesting to see how these protests have spread everywhere and even to a country like Denmark.
2: Yeah, the uh, the the pictures, uh, the story of what happened to George Floyd as well as the very uh, jarring pictures of various uh, cities in the United States with protests and uh, the fires and the looting and all that kind of stuff have been pretty dominant in the media over here. Uh, so they had about 2,000 people protesting in Copenhagen yesterday. They're carrying signs that would say things like, you know, stop killing black people. If riots are not the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. Black Lives Matter. Uh, it was, you know, not a huge number of people, but it was large enough to me that even the U.S. Embassy here in Denmark actually released a statement to local media basically saying that uh, the responsibility for George Floyd's death is being addressed through the American legal system and they support human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty bland statement, actually.
0: Interesting. Okay, I want to talk as well about what we usually talk to you about, and that is the pandemic situation. Denmark has been reopening things, including borders. How has that been going?
2: Yeah, so uh, on Friday they made an announcement where they're going to, and you and I talked about this previously and we've seen it either bandied about or or in actuality between you know for example countries like australia and new zealand where they're sort of you know close allies uh, located close together geographically they look at each other and say okay we think you've got the pandemic under control uh, so we're going to try and give our tourism industry some kind of a bone and we're going to help each other out but we're going to be wary of some other countries so denmark has followed that example they struck a deal with norway uh, a side deal with norway as well as uh, deals with Germany and with Iceland. So essentially Danes can go to any three of those countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can visit, uh, they can do all the tourism stuff. Uh, People from those countries can come to Denmark. Uh, The only sort of oddity of it is that only Danes can go to Norway and only Norwegians can come to Denmark. As I said, it's a bit of a side deal. Yeah. (laughs) So what will happen is on June 15th, um, people coming into Denmark, and this is where it gets kind of interesting, not only have sort of like-minded you know sort of quote-unquote safe countries banded together here to try and encourage tourism but in denmark's case to me they've actually said to incoming tourists that they have to have proof of six nights accommodation anywhere in denmark except for copenhagen you're not allowed as a tourist to stay overnight in copenhagen it's considered a hot spot Uh, they don't want people spreading more infection there or taking infection home from there so uh, they actually recommended no overnight stays in Copenhagen, and if anyone is in Denmark and wants to visit Copenhagen and while they're here, uh, they're recommending as short as possible day trips, not as it. And that's made <laughs> some of the tourism sector in Copenhagen um, livid, uh, to put it lightly, while they're celebrating in sort of all other parts of Denmark where they're expecting a big influx from especially Germany as of June 15th. And by the way, they'll also offer randomized voluntary COVID tests at the border.
0: Really? So if you just want one or is it random they're testing people randomly?
2: Yeah, I don't have a good sense of exactly how it'll work, but my understanding is just based on sort of what the government has had to say so far is that there'll be randomized voluntary tests. You won't be forced to take them. Uh, They'll be offered to you on a a randomized sort of whatever that means. Uh, So, and then if anybody, of course, tests positive or has symptoms, they're not allowed into the country. Um, it was interesting to me. Like I said, the announcement came on a Friday. Yeah. And you and I talked about the complexities involved in Sweden, much like, you know, when you guys talk about opening the border up there, the United States is going to be a big problem.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: they have excluded Sweden. That decision has been pushed off wow. August 31st. Uh, so no Swedish tourists are allowed in to Denmark And it happened on a Friday when Sweden had 761 new infection cases uh, and 84 deaths. That's the largest number of new infection cases Sweden has had in a month. So any kind of protest out of Sweden was muted by the numbers. Right. So that was fairly interesting.
0: It is. All right, Shane, thank you.
2: One quick note, if you're a Dane and you're going out, you can't visit cities over 750,000 population either. Otherwise, it's a two-week quarantine coming back in. So big cities is a big point in this thing.
0: Okay, sounds like it. Thanks, Shane. Thanks. That's Shane Woodford, our freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Protests have been happening all across the United States, and they show no sign of abating at all. Last night, the protests, along with some vandalism and looting, spread to cities like Seattle and Washington, D.C. There was also a peaceful gathering here in downtown Vancouver yesterday. We'll have more on that in a few minutes. Right now, though. Let's find out more about what has been happening south of us. And joining us now is Global News, Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. It's been quite a night in Washington, D.C. Give us an idea of what's been going on.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, it's been quite a a last week now across this country. But, uh, you know, right now in Washington, a very different scene than what we saw just 10 hours ago standing in the same spot at the entrance to Lafayette Park uh, going into the White House. Right now it is a cleanup effort. Uh, it is more media here than anyone else. But last night when we were here, it was a protest that spun wildly out of control. There were thousands of people that were gathered uh, in this park and on the streets surrounding it, uh, looting things, setting buildings on fire, smashing windows. Uh, and they were met with uh, with resistance from police that dispersed canisters after canisters of tear gas and pepper spray into the crowds. This is something that has been going on for days, and we don't know when it's going to end.
0: And, what, and you must see you're there this morning, right, outside the White House?
5: Yeah, we're standing at, at the entrance to Lafayette Park, which is just across the street.
0: And what does that look like this morning, then?
5: Well, it's it's last night when we were standing here. There's a there's a structure at the front of the park that is, you know, it has this park material, and it was uh, it was toppled with with hundreds of people on top of it last night. When we came back this morning, it is a charred shell. It it was set on fire right after we left. Right behind me is uh, is is a historic church that presidents, all presidents, attend at least one mass in this church. The basement was set on fire right next to it the afl-cio the largest labor federation union in the country its building was set on fire and its windows were destroyed uh this is a scene that plays up and down the streets around the white house and around the district right now uh as these as these these protests turn into riots they become rebellions uh as people sit there and say that their voices have not been heard for decades and centuries and they are waiting for somebody to listen to them
0: Is there any indication that that is going to happen, Reggie? Like, what has been the White House
5: response to this? Well, look, the the White House response... Apologies for that. My mic just fell off. Apologies for that. Uh, the, The White House response has been quiet so far. I mean, the president, he was on Twitter... Uh, throughout the day yesterday, he's been on Twitter so far this morning, but vocally uh, he has been silent. And his press secretary says uh, that a message uh, from the president from the Oval Office isn't going to stop what they say is Antifa. Uh, and therefore, the president doesn't need to speak. But what he's actually doing is fanning the flames with the with the tweets that he has been using and sending for the last couple of days. Uh, it really is starting to uh, keep a country that's on eggshells uh, more fragile than it was, you know, say a week ago.
0: Right. And so that there doesn't seem to be any sign, though, that things are slowing down or calming down in any way.
5: No. And, and, and it's because there is no top down messaging. This is much like it was in the coronavirus pandemic that we're still in. Uh, that This is being left up to state governors and local municipalities to try and deal with uh, when this is a nationwide problem. There is a, a systemic problem with racism in this country and they need messaging coming from the highest levels, which would be the president, uh, and that's not happening. Which is why we have states calling in national guards because they understand that the police forces uh, are, are tense between communities, and this national guard is being called in as a way to try and buffer the situation. You know, this is something that has been burning in people's uh, in people's lives for decades and for centuries, and and you know, it yeah. comes out when we see these situations uh, that involve police, involve death.
0: Now we've seen this happen before, but I'd have to say it's, it's much. It was much more localized in the past. Where all of this does seem to have been set off, you know, by the death of George Floyd. Do you see that being the case here? Is it for some reason this just let out a whole bunch of kind of pent up anger and anxiety and frustration?
5: Yeah, I mean, you're right. A lot of times these are localized events, you know, whether it was in Ferguson, whether it was in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, whether it was in the death of Sandra Bland. These are usually isolated incidents that happen in a city and you'll see some protests pop up around the country. This is different. This is a a country that has been incredibly divided for the last four years. uh, And and they have a president who has been this kind of divider-in-chief stoking the flames and kind of poking the bear over the last... Four years, And I think that there is a country, this is a country that is at its breaking point right now. Uh, and they have been calling for changes to, to police forces and how, how conduct is, is taken care of uh, across the country when it comes to uh, its law enforcement. Uh, and this simply was kind of that straw that broke the camel's back.
0: Now, lots of talk about law enforcement and especially how that's been dealt with in terms of the press covering uh, what has been going on there. Reports right across the country that uh, police forces aren't, in some cases, not doing the best job of making sure that they don't target the press, and that's been happening. Have you heard about that?
5: Of course, yeah, that's been happening from coast to coast. You know, look, the the press in the United States is covered under the First Amendment. We have a right to be uh, on a scene reporting from a story, uh, but Either they're being caught up in the rioting uh, or police are simply targeting them. We've seen police turn uh, their guns, their, their guns that shoot out either paint canisters or pepper spray or tear gas, and point them directly at the men- members of the media and fire them. We've seen this happen on live TV. We've seen it happen in pictures. There's a photojournalist who lost her eye uh, when police shot rubber bullets at her. This is something that has been going on now uh, for four days. And a part of this, you know, not all police are doing this. It- it's individualized uh, officers that are carrying these attacks out. But it doesn't help that you have the president continuously pushing the narrative that the media are fake news and the enemy of the people. It just makes a situation that's already tense that much worse.
0: All right. So, no- no word out of the White House today? the doesn't seem like the president's going to be saying anything?
5: No, the press secretary was on Fox News this morning, Kayleigh McEnany, saying that the president, you know, making an address from the Oval Office isn't going to stop what they believe to be left-wing uh, aggression that they believe is starting these protests. So for now, uh, the only message you're going to hear from the president is going to be when his fingers use Twitter.
0: All right. Thank you very much for that, Reggie. Thank you, Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini outside of the White House this morning, where uh, it has been a mess overnight. There, there, what started as a peaceful protest, uh, and in some areas there, there was rioting. Uh, you heard Reggie say some buildings that were set on fire as well. Uh, it is, it was awful. Right on the weekend, watching all of this unfold. Uh, but if you want to watch something that you go, okay, there's somebody who did it correctly, then watch the video that has been making the rounds. I don't know if you've had a chance, but you can look it up of the sheriff in Flint, Michigan. If you just Google that, Flint, Michigan sheriff, and you will see something that will make you go, okay, there's someone who gets it, and there's someone who is doing the right thing about how, as a police officer and law enforcement, to respond to what they see happening in the streets." So if you have a moment and you haven't seen it already, that is something where you go, thank goodness, yes, there is some common sense out there, somebody who knows how to uh, respond to concerns in the community. Community, just Google that Flint,
4: Michigan Sheriff. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: That's the sound of about a thousand people gathered downtown at the Vancouver Art Gallery late yesterday afternoon, early evening, and they were also like so many people around the world yesterday protesting police violence against people of colour and in particular black people. They were chanting, as you heard, for justice and peace. Now, the Vancouver protest was large, if you take a look at it, and kudos to the people who were there. Most of them were wearing masks, uh, and they were leaving space in between each other, so still, you know, doing the right thing uh, while they were trying to do the right thing at the same time. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to Global News reporter Julia Foy, who was at the scene.
6: I arrived about a half an hour before it was supposed to begin, and at that point, there was already a sizable crowd of people. Many had signs. Uh, A lot of uh, messaging going out about Black Lives Matter, discrimination. There was anger that was certainly being expressed in the way people were dressing. They had logos. They had symbols. But the person that organized this rally, this young man, uh, Jacob Prasad, really came into it, I think, with a very positive attitude. And it started to sort of feel like this was going to be the tone of the day. But as the crowd grew, and they became more vocal, and there was more shouting, and there was some very angry kind of ranting, I would say we all felt sort of the energy rise. And I felt the tension also started to multiply.
7: So by the time that the rally was underway, how many people would you say were there in the crowd?
6: You know, it started out with hundreds of people, and it was there were already speakers happening before five o'clock, which is when it was supposed to begin. At one count, uh, I'm not sure whether we're getting this from uh, the VPD, but I've heard three thousand. Uh, people were jammed in so closely. I'm afraid there was not as much social distancing as I would have liked to see, but people were just they were very engaged, and they were packed in all around the Vancouver Art Gallery, not only in the front plaza, but down the side streets. Sections of Georgia were shut down. But people seemed to be riveted. Like, they were in this moment. They were interested. And unfortunately, the organizers didn't even have a very good audio system set up. And I was surprised because I had been at the front, very close to the steps where they had, like, a loudspeaker. But for people that were a little farther away You could barely hear what a lot of people were sharing, and yet people stayed. They stayed, they chatted, they looked attentive. They wanted to be seen, and they wanted to be there.
7: Now, I've seen on social media some people saying, this is America's problem. You know, why protest here in Canada? Did you get a sense of why the protesters at Sunday night's event felt that this message needed to be carried over the border?
6: It was pretty clear as soon as the people started to talk. What happened was organizers sort of had their personal uh, moments, and they wanted to share their their outrage and their sadness about the death of George Floyd. But as people were invited to come up, many people uh, from the black community, from international multicultural communities came up. But what they really wanted to talk about was racism and how racism spawns hatred and violence. And it was actually very heartbreaking to hear people of many ages come up and speak about their personal experiences with racism, whether it was when they were growing up, when they were going to school, and many of them still mentioned that they felt that the atrocities that we've seen in the United States may not be happening in the same volume and the same uh, video clips that we're seeing all over social media but their main message was that this kind of thing is happening, in that there is racial profiling, that there is harassment often for some of these folks by local police forces. They, there were many people that talked about that, which I think caught me off guard perhaps a little bit more than, than I thought it would, in that they really were very, um, very spoken about the black experience in Canada. And it was interesting because of Vancouver, of course has had a lot of terrible uh, graffiti going on that's targeting uh, many people in the Asian communities. Mm-hmm. There were not as many people sort of talking about that, and I think we wondered if maybe more people from uh, Asian communities would like to join in and speak to this. But there were certainly opportunities, but for today it was about mostly about the black experience in Canada and that what's happening in the United States is happening to a smaller scale in Canada.
7: Now, you mentioned this a few moments ago, but when you talk about a crowd of 3,000 or so people gathering at the art gallery, as you said, there's not a lot of room for social distancing there. This really has been the first big rally that's been held in Metro Vancouver since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Did you see people taking efforts to protect themselves against the virus?
6: I know that when I got out of my car, I was wearing my mask, and I knew going in that this was probably not going to be what I would consider a a really safe situation, considering we are still in a pandemic. Our numbers are low, but when you have several thousand people, we're all squeezed into a relatively small space. There was yelling, there was chanting, there was, you know, uh, I was going to say, you know, speaking moistly, if we can go there. Um, I certainly feel that, we probably were in a situation where people were put at risk. I don't think people intentionally wanted to do something that would hurt other people, but their passions overtook them. And so many people came out that there was some social distancing along the fringes, but there were a lot of people. And as I say, there was some space between people, but there certainly wasn't two metres between people. So it will be interesting to see if there is any kind of a bump in the numbers in the next week or two. But we were outside, and many people did wear masks. So I'm optimistic, let's say, (laughs) that uh, we won't see a spike coming out of this day.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: We know that this pandemic situation left municipalities right across the country in the lurch when it came to finances. Certainly, City of Vancouver made no secret of that. Well, help may be on the horizon as early as today from the Prime Minister. Let's find out more about that. David Aiken joins us now, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David.
8: Good morning, Simeon. Yeah, I think uh, you set that up pretty nicely, that uh, municipalities right across the country, um, you know, if they've had a real tough time of it because they're under pressure to provide some pretty important services, I and mean, everything from, uh, you know, a public transit, of course, to paramedics, uh, picking up the trash. Uh, all these services have to still be uh, provided, and yet uh, a lot of the revenue that uh, the uh, cities and, and towns rely on Particularly when it comes to transit, uh, it has just hasn't been there. And so, uh, of course, municipalities cannot borrow their way past a crisis the way a provincial government or a federal government can. Pro- municipalities have to sort of pay their bills at the end of the year. And, uh, and that's put a lot of mayors in a tough spot. And I know Kennedy Stewart was one of the first out of the gate among big city mayors. I think, in fact, if, uh, if I recall correctly, I think the city did a, a, um, commission to poll and, yeah. and was asking residents, are you going to, will you be able to pay property taxes? And the answer was, you know, a whole lot of people were saying, I don't think I'll be able to make my property tax bill. And, of course, that's going to affect uh, revenues. So uh, what we what we expect today from the PM is uh, the PM's going to announce $2.2 billion in support for municipalities. This is what our friends at Bloomberg are reporting. Uh, but we know that that may not be enough because municipalities just, I think, about three weeks ago, uh, they met with the PM and said, we need 10 billion dollars uh, combined across the country. So this might be a first sort of tranche, if you will. It's going to come in the form of a, a GST rebate to the municipalities in advance on the rebates. So a couple of billion dollars for municipalities. I mean, one more hmm. level of government that uh, needs some help.
0: Isn't that interesting? Because Vancouver did say that in the beginning, but we've learned now in the last week or two that their financial picture is actually better than they had forecast, and they are ah. going to manage to balance their budget. So they said that back then... Now things are better than they thought, but that may not be the case for, say, like, what's the situation in places like Toronto and Ottawa?
8: Right. Well, I guess it all depends on, uh, you know, In Ottawa is sort of a unique case because it's a federal government town. It's probably a bit like Victoria in that sense, a government town. Right. Governments are kind of pandemic-proof, and people are still, to degree, uh, moving about the city. But uh, I know Edmonton's the the this, this the spokesperson for the big city mayors' caucus, and Vancouver would be part of the big city uh, mayors' caucus. Uh, Edmonton's mayor Don Iverson. I know Edmonton is in particularly rough straits. Same thing with yeah. Calgary, Mayor Nahid There, so it really sort of depends. And uh, very interesting to hear, though, that Vancouver finds itself yeah. in not such a bad spot. But I'm sure if there's money to be had, no mayor is going to turn it no. down. Uh, but again, it sounds like it's an advance on uh, rebates, So you're getting right. money now that you might have counted on down the road. So we'll have to see how the program plays
0: out. And can we also talk about the fact that we're hearing increasingly about Canadian families who are kind of stuck on either side of the border and have not been able to reunite here?
8: Yeah, and it turns out, I mean, we, you probably heard anecdotal evidence about this. We have here, we've heard of about one case where, you know, dad is an American and mom is a Canadian and mom's about to give birth and dad can't get across Ooh. the border. So, so these, uh, you know, compassionate, uh, sort of situations. In fact, there's 1,500 Canadians who, um, the, an immediate family member is on the wrong side of the border and, and there's been requests to have the, I guess, American come up and be on the Canadian side of the border. So far, Uh, That's no go because uh, it's only essential travel is allowed over that border. Um, But the PM last week brought this up with the premiers on their weekly conference call. They did talk about this. The prime minister is sympathetic to the idea of trying to find a way to reunite families. Um, but not all premiers are. I know, uh, I'm not exactly sure where Premier Horgan is, but at the other end of the country, uh, Premier Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, he's hardcore. He doesn't want that border loose in one bit, uh, even if it is for compassionate reasons. So we'll see. At the end of the day, the federal government does have control on this. And I know the the approach the prime minister has tried to take is is to make these rule right. changes by consensus. All premiers want that border to stay otherwise pretty tight. Uh, We'll see where we go with uh, compassionate uh, considerations. I expect a decision probably sometime this week on that.
0: All right. Thank you, David.
8: Okay. Thanks, Simi. Cheers.
0: Our David Akin, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, there giving a preview of what to expect from the Prime Minister today. Sounds like money coming for municipalities right across the country.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Well, today is a big day here in BC. We're taking a very large step forward in trying to get things to return to what we were doing way back in February, which seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? And among the things that we are doing today, we're returning to school. We're going to be talking to the education minister about that, but also increased bus service. For example, as of today, once again, passengers will be able to board from the front of the bus again, not just from the back. And fare collection will resume. That's a big one. So they will be collecting fares again. And capacity is also going to increase from about 50% to about two-thirds now. But how can TransLink do all that and still ensure that buses are safe for both passengers and drivers? Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Gavin
7: McGarrigal, the spokesperson for Unifor. Have you heard any concerns from drivers about the safety aspect of this as we move into some of the changes today?
2: Well, we've been working with the company
3: on uh, various protocols for the barriers. Uh, Our safety committees have been working with company officials. Um, No one has been here before. We haven't you know, come out of a pandemic and had to move in this direction. So we've been working with them to try to make it as safe as possible. There are uh, concerns across the membership about uh, keeping themselves safe and also keeping the passengers safe. And so we're going to have lots of representatives on the ground uh, tomorrow morning just to make sure that everything's going as smooth as possible.
0: All right, that is Gavin McGarigal, the spokesperson for Unifor. Joining us now to talk more about this is Kevin Desmond, the CEO of Translate. Good morning, and thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. What kind of an effort has gone into this to make this day happen?
3: Uh, Well, great lead-in from uh, Ms. McGarigal and and your points. It is um, a transition day for for us as well, Uh, resuming front-door boarding, asking our customers to start paying the fare again on the buses. Uh, we did a lot uh, working with our workforce, with the union, uh, to make sure that could be done safely. So all of the buses have uh, barriers or, or temporary uh, uh, vinyl curtains, if you will, separating the bus operator from the customers as they go on the front door. And uh, as you pointed out, we're removing the signs on every other seat on the buses that would block off uh, seating and will allow around two-thirds capacity um of of buses so a lot of uh, thought has gone into this next uh, phase and we call it our safe operating um action plan it has three uh primary components we're, we've added back almost all of the service that was removed um um in the in the days after um, the crisis hit we're still only at about 80 percent or 20 percent of ridership before covid so so there's a lot of space on buses and Skytrains for most of the day uh, and most of your, your trips, uh, we've we've substantially increased the cleaning and sanitization of of all of our equipment um, and our and our stations. And we're asking our customers: you need to do your part as well. If, if you're feeling ill, please don't travel. Please practice all of those personal hygiene tips that we've all been taught day in and day out. And please, if you can, wear a mask when you when when you're uh, when you're traveling. So those combined um, steps. Uh, we believe at this point in time uh, can provide for a, 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 safe, uh, a safe travel if you practice what you need to do on your own, and if we're doing the things that we have to do to keep the, uh, the rolling stop clean.
0: Right. Mr. Desmond, what's the financial picture like for TransLink right now? Originally, I mean, here we are June 1st, there were supposed to be a lot of layoffs this month.
3: Yeah, uh, um, several weeks ago, we got a letter from the province. They asked us to uh, receive the, the service cuts and, and the layoffs. Uh, they They've recognized that transit is an essential service, even during the worst of of the pandemic. And as the economy uh, begins to slowly reopen, it was very clear that having a a dramatically diminished public transit system would stymie the recovery to a degree and also create um, less safe conditions. We have much more crowding uh, on the diminished level of service. So in fact, uh, for bus, uh, for, for conventional bus and for SkyTrain, we're more or less operating uh, at, pre-COVID, uh, at pre-COVID levels. And that's a good thing because it does help the, uh, the, the restart of the economy. And it clearly allows more space for the system as we begin to welcome back riders.
0: Yeah, are you concerned, like, do you think ridership will return? There's been lots of discussion about how people won't feel comfortable or the situation has changed. Are you concerned at all about ridership?
9: Oh sure, you know
3: we're we're, we're still down about eighty uh, percent at the low of the low. We were carrying two hundred and forty thousand daily trips as of Wednesday last week. That had risen to about three hundred and sixty thousand, but that was out of one and a half million daily trips that, that we served uh, on public transit. So the ridership uh, will we will recover slowly, but it will be slow, and that's why our finances are going you know, to remain very very tenuous for quite some time. We're, we're very reliant on fares. Uh, to pay our bills uh, at translate, at but worldwide, you know, I think that that's what every transit agency, every metropolitan region, big city in the world is thinking right now is how how and when will people have the confidence to come back uh, to public transit at least before uh, before there's a vaccine. We don't know the answer to that. We need to find that right balance of providing for public safety and enough space for people to uh, to circulate within the buses and trains.
0: Are you concerned about what this could do to the long-term plans that TransLink has?
3: Absolutely. Uh, and I think we, we, we soberly, over time, uh, with all sorts of uh, municipal and, and regional leaders, we have to think about what our values are. I think we still value climate change. We still value managing Uh, the the impact of of global warning. We still um, uh, value sustainable growth and development. We still value finding the right balance of traffic congestion and and growing a public transit system. And and I personally think once the uh, the pandemic ends and there's a vaccine and we get back uh, to a sense of normalcy, all of those values are still going to be front and center. Uh, So the necessity to first restore all of our service to second, to restore our fiscal stability, uh, and then get on with, with, with whatever types of uh, growth plans uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic um, are, are considered viable and important for the region that we find ways to do that.
0: So does that mean that what we did have on that 10-year plan and things that we kind of had on the drawing board, is everything kind of on pause while we wait to see if we can still do it?
3: No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you know, the Broadway subway project is going to move forward. Uh, that should go to contract. Uh, in a little while, there was a lot of talk last week in the about the Surrey Language SkyTrain. Uh, while we still have to think through um, our finances in our partnership with the federal government and perhaps the province, that's still a justified project, uh, and so we're still doing all the work necessary uh, to start the next round of uh, to start the um, uh, financial tendering of the, of the project, the expansion of the Expo and Millennium line. Again, this is a blip. I see this as, as a blip. It could be a year. It could be two years of, the, of diminished ridership. But these types of investment are needed for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, so we still have to have those long-term horizons. These investments are investing in the future. And you, that's what these investments are about in the future.
0: You talked about cleaning. Can you give me an idea of what the cleaning protocols are like right now for buses and SkyTrain? How often will they be cleaned?
3: So um, thanks for asking the question. SkyTrain, we're, we're cleaning each and every day, and we're instituting what we call pit crews in about four or five lo- uh, terminal locations um, throughout the uh, throughout the city. Um, pit crews, uh, as soon as the train arrives, they'll do a quick uh, wipe down, uh, sanitation uh, wipe down for um, bus and sea bus We're deep, deep cleaning uh, twice a week at this point. And uh, handy dart vehicles, we do the deep cleaning every single day.
0: Okay, and so that is going to continue indefinitely then?
3: That will continue indefinitely. You know, and our safe operating action plan is a living document. Uh, it, 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 as you heard Mr. McDonald, in fact say, we've, nobody's done this before. There's no playbook for this. We're going to very, very closely follow uh, the, the guidance of, of public health, uh, work since BC, worldwide best practices, and, and we'll continue to evolve our plan uh, as as we need to.
0: So what would you say then to people who have been reluctant to get back on transit or may be reluctant to get on transit?
3: Well, a few things. I, I think please practice your own um, good personal hygiene tips. Please, if you can, wear uh, a, a non-surgical mask, face covering. Um, if you can travel off, peace, uh, not during that, you know, 6 to, to 8.30 in the morning and, and and 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, in, in the evening when it tends to be more crowded, and stagger how and when we use the public transit system, you're going to encounter fewer people um, if, if you do that. Uh, and I just, I, I think for people who are thinking about coming back to transit, uh, please have confidence. We are thinking day and night, 24-7, about how to keep you safe.
0: All right, Mr. Desmond, thank you for your time.
3: Thank you.
4: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: My school enrolls approximately 350 students. I'm anticipating having approximately 80 students back. But again, that could change in the morning.
0: It could change in the morning. That was Alan Miller, the principal for Edith McDermott Elementary in Pitt Meadows, speaking with Global News. It will be different depending on the school, depending on the neighbourhood, depending on how parents and students feel. So we wanted to talk about that big return to class that is happening for students and teachers across the province today. Joining us now, Education Minister Rob Fleming. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Simi.
0: So what are you hearing from school boards on this? Do you feel there's going to be a good turnout today?
1: Um, I think it ranges across the province. We, of course, have 60 uh, school districts uh, and then the independent school sector. Some districts are are low, 20 to 25% of families have taken the option to return their child uh, part-time to school, and some are as high as 80%. Um, So there's quite a range out there. Uh, but, of course, if a typical district is somewhere around 50% of, of K-5 students anyway returning, that's um, 50% of, of 50% uh, because the uh, classroom numbers are going to be significantly reduced. So, uh, very similar to what your your guest was saying there earlier. Uh, you know, if you have a typical grade one class of 22 kids, um, you, you could see as few as... Um, six kids per class and they'll be sitting in classrooms that have physically distanced desks and they'll be under a new set of rules. Uh, Kids will get used to very frequent hand washing and the use of hand sanitizer and keeping distance from one another and you know, not all activities will be possible like uh, school was before we got into this pandemic but they'll be learning some new rules that will really guide us um, until we've defeated COVID-19 and have a vaccine and, and and life is truly back to normal where, whenever that may be.
0: And so what is the purpose then of doing this? If we are going to get, you know, very few kids in some cases going back to class, then why do this? Why not just put it off till September?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of kids that have struggled and there are parents now who have restarted their jobs going back in the office. There are some um, parents who are continuing to work from home and they've really struggled to become you know, assistance to teachers, the remote online learning, Um, although we saw lots of innovation and wonderful examples of uh, teachers working really, really hard to keep kids engaged. It it hasn't worked evenly for everybody. I think it's not terribly well suited for younger children. Um, And uh, this gives them an option. Uh, Kids who do return to class on a voluntary part-time basis will also be able to continue with their online uh, teaching but I think that, uh, on learning I should say, but I think there are a lot of benefits, uh, social, emotional as well as uh, you know, uh, to prevent kids from falling further behind because a lot of kids have been. We've heard that loud and clear from from parents and, and from kids themselves. Um, but we're, we're able to do this uh, safely in British Columbia because we're in a very unique position amongst jurisdictions in the world in terms of having Uh, curbed uh, transmission. You've seen falling rates of infection for weeks and weeks and weeks now. And we've been guided by Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team on what a health and safety protocol looks like. WorkSafe BC, the BC Centre for Disease Control. And I'm really proud to say in BC it's been a very collaborative process. We would not have moved forward if we weren't uh, working uh, as closely as we have been with the BC Teachers Federation, with QPBC, with principals and vice principals, parent organizations. So, we've been figuring this out together for the last five to six weeks and we've arrived at a time when we can, when we can do this.
0: And is a lot of this practice as well, you know, so that we can learn some things, talk about them, discuss them over the summer before September?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, and look, I think, I think having moved into what we call stage three, where we have, you know, very limited part-time school instruction, uh, as we've described on your show uh, many times, um, We're going to be set up uh, much better uh, for September, and, uh, you know, other places we'll be figuring out for the first time, we'll have uh, been able to uh, figure it out in in June, and and who knows what the future holds. I think you heard Dr. Bonnie Henry on the weekend and on other occasions say we have to be flexible, we have to, you know, we'll we'll continue to be science-led if we do have outbreaks or a so-called second wave in, in, in the fall and winter of this year, we'll, we'll have to move back. Um, we'll have to move back. We'll have to move forwards uh, based on what is safe and what is happening in our province in terms of uh, the virus.
0: And very quickly then, Mr. Fleming, what do you say to parents who are apprehensive about this? and they Maybe they don't want to send their kids back.
1: I would say that they have the option of not doing that. And that's perfectly understandable and uh, there is no wrong decision for your family uh, to either return your kid to school or 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 not uh, continue with the online remote learning um, it's also okay to change your mind I know there's a lot of parents that are going to see how this goes and they may express some interest we certainly saw that in New Zealand and Denmark and other places where they've safely restarted their schools that some took a wait and see attitude seeing as believing they'll want to see the health and safety protocols they'll want to hear from their friends and fellow parents uh, who have returned to school perhaps so all right, we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes
0: well thank you very much for your time
1: thanks for having me
4: this is Mornings with Simi. no, broken,
0: no Those are the sounds from the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery late yesterday afternoon. And we know that people were taking to the streets all over the world, particularly in the United States, and as well in Vancouver and Toronto to protest injustice. Now, in Toronto in particular, one of the reasons why so many people turned out was to protest the death of Regis Korshinsky-Paquet, who died after falling from a balcony while police were responding to a 911 call in her apartment. Now, initially, her family had quite strongly come out and blamed the police. Uh, In a statement, though, the family's lawyer has now kind of walked back some of those allegations. An investigation into what happened into her death is now underway. But obviously, that has deeply impacted uh, what those protests in Toronto look like. So to talk more about that case and other issues surrounding this is Toronto-based criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind, who joins us now. Ari, thanks for being here.
9: Pleasure to be on with you, Simi.
0: Now, tell me a bit about this case. I'm not sure it's been so crazy busy. Not all Canadians have heard about this.
9: Nor should they, because there's so much misinformation, and you were very, very polite to that lawyer where you said he walked it back. That's putting it about as mildly as I've ever heard it, because he did a press conference, and I know him. He's a lovely guy. Uh, He did a press conference that made it very clear that what the family was suggesting through him is that eight police officers went up to a mental health call on the 24th floor of an apartment in Toronto, and they essentially chucked a young black lady over the balcony. That is the impression that was left. That is the impression that was left to fester all over anti-social media. By that, I mean Twitter. And it led to all of this media coverage as if the police went up there and killed her. Anybody in the know, and I am in the know, and there are many in the know, knows that's not what happened, okay? The way it works, though, Simi, and this is important, is that in Toronto we have what's called the Special Investigations Unit. Okay? So whenever there's somebody hurt at the scene where police are, there's a special unit s- supposed to be separate from the police that go in and investigate and take over. And nobody's allowed to talk publicly. So all eight of the cops in that unit are silenced while they're being called murderers by Twitter. The police chief gives an absolutely indignant press conference on the weekend saying, hey, and I'm going to paraphrase because he was stuck. Everybody needs to shut up about the idea that there's a murder here. There's no murder. I'm not allowed to tell you what happened because of the rules. And I'm the police chief, so I have to follow the rules. But all of this misinformation all over anti-social media should be walked back.
0: But has he met with the family? Has he talked to them? Like, why why would the family speak out like this?
9: So, here, so here's what happened. So this is why I, I start with the lawyer. This meeting with the family lawyer happened at police headquarters. The family lawyer comes out right onto 40 College Street, which is where police headquarters are in Toronto, and says, I'm walking this back. I'm walking this back. The family was emotional. The family doesn't have all the information. The family wasn't there. But the family believes, and this is how he saved himself, the family believes that the situation could have ended up differently. Right. now,
0: but I, I guess sorry, what it. I don't understand is why didn't the police chief sit down with the actual family?
9: Well, he did. That's, that's my point. He offered to, and because of the pressure, he did with the family's representative. I guarantee you he would have probably met with the family if he didn't. I don't know who was in the room, but the lawyer was. And then the lawyer puts out a statement that says the family is no longer accusing anybody of murder. The family just thinks something different could have happened. But when the truth comes out, Simeon, of what did happen, of what did happen up in that apartment, I would be interested if there was a massive apology given, because anybody comparing what happened in that apartment to what happened to Mr. Floyd, who, in my view, in Minnesota was killed by that police officer... You cannot compare different things and call them the same.
0: Okay, let's talk about that situation as well, dealing with George Floyd and what happened in the U.S. Very quick action there by the police chief. You've got, you know, at least one officer charged, all four officers who were there fired. Would that surprise you to see such quick action? Usually it so, takes longer than that.
9: Yeah, so Simi, that's a great question, and I've been talking about that for the last week, and I will bring this information that people don't tend to know because this is unusual in canada for example in my city you could have the same situation happen literally on video on youtube live on ctv global whatever your chosen network is there is no chance on the planet simi i'm not being hyperbolic that any police officer would be fired the next day for this there is no chance on the planet that any police officer would be charged with murder or manslaughter within five days of this. None. Not on the planet Earth, okay, in Canada. So what's really interesting and important here, given that we see the violence and the, lo- and the, ru- uh, the rioting, the looting, the looting of innocent businesses, innocent people's lives being destroyed by these violent people last night, is in Minnesota, this is the key, there has never been A firing or an arrest this fast, and that has not led to any calming of things. I've understood the rioting and all of this to happen when no cops get charged and the thin blue line. But here, you're absolutely right, Simi, and it's important for people to know. Nobody has sat on their hands. And in fact, you could make an unpopular argument. You could that the officer was charged too quickly and the four of them were fired too quickly, but that argument in today's day and age will not hold water.
0: Also, Ari, as you say, there, there's an awful lot of cases where that never happened, and I think that's the frustration that you're seeing out there. But anyway, thank you very much for your time this morning. Appreciate that. Pleasure to me. Ari Golkind is a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, talking about some of the reasons why Toronto protests have ramped up as well. But again, what we're seeing, I think, happening in the U.S. is cumulative. Frustration. Maybe in this case they acted quickly, but what about all the other cases where they did
4: not? This is Mornings with Simi.
0: You know, COVID-19 is not the first pandemic the world has seen, and it certainly will not be the last. I mean, history has shown us that. But where do we put it in historical perspective? And what are we learning from it before the next one comes along? Well, our next guest has written extensively about pandemics. In fact, his new book just out is called On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases from Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus. And he joins us now. It is Dr. David Waltner-Taves. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be there. Well, good. Here. You you first wrote this book thinking about SARS and H1N1. So at what point did you realize, okay, it's time to update this with a new edition?
10: Um, actually H1N1 hadn't when I first wrote the when I wrote the first edition back in 2005-06 and it came out in 2007, it was I was focused on diseases people get from animals. So I was looking at there's a whole range of diseases, everything from West Nile virus and rabies to the foodborne diseases and so on. Uh, we And then we had SARS and we had an almost pandemic with uh, bird flu. It never quite materialized as a pandemic. And then um, when this came up, the publisher called me and said, can you update that? And I thought, well, sure, I can update it. But actually, when I dove in, I realized it was more complicated than I thought. So my wife didn't see me for a few weeks <laughs> um, as I tried to figure out what was going on, because we've had a kind of shift. Even while I was writing the last book, it's not just this animal, you get that, you get exposed to it, you can vaccinate. Um, we've had this shift that that's related to a whole bunch of things like the way we eat, the, the uh, the the global population mid 60s we went from like three and a half billion people to now over seven billion we went from a few billion chickens to 20 billion chickens uh pig production increased and and what happened in this most people start in the market in in wuhan but i kind of look back and i say well what happened before that well in 2018 there was a virus called african swine fever which hadn't been seen in china before it came out of Africa, and it was in Europe for a while, and it was in a few other places, got into China. 2018, 2019, half the pigs in China, so 200 million pigs, China already had most of the pigs in the world, so 200 million pigs died from this disease or were were killed off in order to prevent its spread. It doesn't get into people, but this is, so this is happening like last year and the year before. They also had some outbreaks of, of uh, bird flu. Chickens died off, and then we came into um, the Chinese New Year—the end of the, the year of the pig and the beginning of the year of the rat. So you got tens of millions of people. They're going to the market. They're yeah. trying to find something to eat. So you, the, the guys in the market, the people in the market, are just trying to meet this consumer demand, and and it's really hard because there aren't as many pigs, there aren't as many chickens, and so they're selling whatever they can. So they're just they're being good capitalist if you want. So this is all in a setting where you know the, the global trade in in pigs and in chickens has increased massively in the last decade. Right. You know, e- three, four decades. So and then and then we've got people pushing up we are, because we've got more people, we're pushing out into areas where there's wildlife and so that you know these are there are fruit bats and the fruit bats are eating fruit and they're they're pooping in areas where these the other animals so the viruses Un um, viruses are, are unstable, especially these coronaviruses and influenza viruses. So they get into uh, another species, they, they pick up some other genetic material, which enables them then to be passed on to some other species. Right. So I suspect that this is, was circulating around that area before this outbreak happened. And then when you had this perfect storm, if you want, it just, you know, Everybody's shopping. Right. There aren't as many pigs. There's all these other species, and then it started spreading.
0: You deal with some pretty scary stuff in your book, though, like those hemorrhagic fevers, which I find yep. just so incredibly scary. Where, in your opinion, does the scariest stuff come from?
10: Uh, the scariest stuff the, for people, the scariest stuff is if it it adapts to um, to to us being you know transmitting among people. Yeah. So things like Ebola virus tend to stay in the same area. I mean, there have been huge outbreaks. And uh, between 2013, and 2016, there were 20, 11,000 people died in, in, French, um, in French West Africa. And then in 2018, uh, there have been uh, another couple of thousand deaths in the Democratic Republic. So that's a really scary disease. But you have to get really close to the animal in order for it to spread, I, something like SARS um, uh, was was scary. Yeah. Uh, bird flu could have been scary, but again, it, it never quite adapted to people. You had to be really, really close to it. If that had adapted to people, I, the proportion of people that died who got it was really high. So if, that, you know, if we hadn't stopped it on the farm, if you want, that yeah. would have been a really scary one.
0: The book is so fascinating. I thank you for joining us today to talk about it i uh, happy to talk about it. Not happy about
10: the pandemic. But... No,
0: not happy about that. But <laughs> your book is super educational on that front. That is Dr. David yeah. Waltner-Taves, a veterinary epidemiologist and author. The book is called On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases, From Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus. It is a fascinating read. We know that schools are back in session today. Things are opening up. Restaurants are opening. And is there no more sure sign of BC getting back on the road to normalcy than knowing that white spot restaurants are also going to be reopening. Joining us now is the president of White Spot, Warren Warren Earhart, who is with us. Good morning, Warren. Good
11: morning, Cindy. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you. So glad to hear the restaurants are reopening. Tell me, what can people expect?
11: Well, I can tell you we're we're, uh, so excited as well. And just uh, for the last 10 weeks, looking after our guests through through takeout and delivery, but uh, having dine-in um, in our restaurants, uh, exciting day for us. And, of course, this week we'll be rolling out uh, all of our, our restaurants sort of in the Vancouver area. Um, we've got a, a lot of protocols in place. and, and so actually started with making sure, that, you know, our, our philosophy has always been if our staff aren't comfortable, our guests will never be that way. So making sure that we have all of our practices and protocols are in place and all of our staff have gone through a really comprehensive online and uh, in person orientation and training program for safety of our guests, um, health checks that we, our employees right. would have to go through and, and then we come to our restaurants you 'll see all our employees will be in in masks and follow strict hand washing and, and other protocols as well. so um, the dining rooms themselves are well spaced out uh, with the, you know, obviously with the the social distancing of, of, of two meters and, and no more than six. Uh, guests at any one table at all. so Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, what do people need
0: that's... to know if they're going to go to a white spot today?
11: Well, I could tell you that, uh, as I said, as they come to our restaurants, and, and, and uh, you'll, see, you'll see in the fact that there'll be a, a placemat, we're sort of going retro, that we're actually having a single-use uh, placemat for our menus, uh, and breakfast, lunch, and dinner will actually be on placemats. Uh, throw it there as well. If you, act, if you had uh, the need for any kind of condiments at all, you'd get them as a, a, a single sort of di- disposable takeaway style, salt, pep- uh, salt and pepper and, and, uh, and vinegar uh, versus having condiments on the tables as well. Okay. Um, if, you, uh, if you came in and we were a bit busy at the time, and hopefully we are, we'll, we'll take your name and text you when your table's ready so you can go back to your car versus having people in their lobby areas.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you know what? Well, so. I'm ready to do it. I am oh, ready great. to come in, well, so I'm excited anyway, to see we it.
11: We look forward to <laughs> greeting you. Uh, I like I say, it's been a while coming, and, and we're, just, uh, we're really excited to do this next chapter in the book. And, uh, yeah, really quite excited that uh, hopefully a lot of other people okay. feel the same way and they're comfortable.
0: Hopefully, Warren. Thank you. Good luck today.
11: Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Simmy.
4: This is Mornings with Simmy.